0: From WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, welcome. I'm Warren O'Destillette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Ed DiLiberto on August 4, 2014. Ed holds a B.A. and M.A. from California State University. He also holds the Credential of Bilingual Education, Spanish-English, 1980, from the California State Board of Education. He served in various educational positions in California, Central America, and South America over the years. He was formerly the director of the Bosch Baha'i Retreat and Conference Center. Most recently, he served for six years on the advisory board assigned to collaborate with the Center for Baha'i Studies in Beijing, where he presented various papers correlating Chinese philosophy with the Baha'i teachings. He has been to 26 countries as a consultant on developing human resources for the Baha'i faith. He is the author of the book, Heroes of the New Age, Published by George Ronald Publications. I started the interview by asking Ed where he grew up and what was it like growing up there.
1: Well, I uh, grew up in Southern California in a little town called Huntington Park. It was in the 40s since I was born in 36. I uh, was raised in the 40s and my formative years were uh, in the 50s. And it made me the man I am today. <laughs> I'm uh, from a Sicilian father and a French-Irish mother.
0: Are they first-generation uh, immigrants? Or are you the first-generation American?
1: Uh, uh, no, my father was uh, uh, the, thir- uh, the second, and my mother uh, went way back to uh, pioneer days. What were your
0: interests growing up?
1: Well, I was a regular kid, uh, moderately unruly. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, fortunate to have loving, patient parents. I was instilled with pride, but the right kind of pride—not uh, better than others, but we have a family tradition to live up to, and you have to uh, do your best to uh, subscribe to it. And that was instilled to, into me, you know, unconsciously. And then I've passed it on to my uh, seven kids and 21 grandchildren and 15 great-grandchildren. <laughs> hey, you know, uh, one of my little kids walks up and says, "Hi, Grandpa!" I said, "Let me see your ID." <laughs> Yeah, so I'm a, you know, I'm a 40s, 50s g- guy, and those are my formative age, and they were good values that I carry to this day. And uh, having become a Baha'i uh, 47 years ago, it, it, it was a good foundation. Although I had Catholic certain amount of upbringing, I believed in God and, you know, those basic things. A lot of people will ask me, well, gee, how'd you wind up the way you are, you know? you know, offhand praises, and I say, I can take no credit for it. This is the hand I was dealt. <laughs> yes.
0: So you mentioned Catholicism, so you were raised as a Catholic?
1: Well, uh, my my Italian grandmother uh, took me to the church, but my mother was Protestant, so never would allow me to be baptized. But she didn't mind in the least uh, that I had those uh, on my Italian side, that, you know, there was no prejudice, but... She forbade me being baptized in the Catholic, so I, w- I was never baptized in either. Although I answered a Protestant uh, altar call, you know what that is? No. Okay. Fundamentalists in the state they said, anyone who believes in Jesus Christ come forward. It's called an altar call, and I don't know if it's still popular, but I, I did that when I was six. In other words, I recognized Jesus Christ as uh, you know. Uh, the best I could. And it's very vivid in my imagination. Uh, in my memory, I should say. So it was sincere, and how uh, so I became a Christian, in my mind, then. And I had a similar experience with Islam, strange enough.
0: Uh, when was that?
1: I was 13 or 14. Uh, I, I had a severe, it's one of those Asian flutes uh, back then. Probably has a name, London flu, something like that. And I was really put under. So I was home. Uh, my grandparents and my mother, they lived across the street, so I went back and forth. And anyway, so my mother had a book called, in fact, I have the book right now. It's Henrik van Moon, the The Story of Mankind, which was a high school level, junior high, history of the world. And so I had all that time in my hands, so I read it. And it had a section on Christianity, Buddhism, and Islam. I had a very neutral, ignorant attitude about Islam and Buddhism, so I was interested in those particular chapters. So when I read the uh, the chapter on Muhammad, I remember distinctly. You know, you know, I'm thinking about it, and so I was doing better. So I walked down the stairs to cross the street to my grandmother's house. Now, again, this is a very vivid, very vivid memory. And as I stepped off the curb, it, by the way, it was a one-way street in a neighborhood, I thought to myself, why can't he be a prophet too? There's no other God but God, and Muhammad is his apostle. You know. Now, I never did anything about it. I never, you know, but in my mind, yeah, he was one of the prophets too. Now, it was only later... Uh, after becoming a Baha'i that I realized the significance of that.
0: But Ed, before we get into that, I'd like to follow, pull a thread on you, what you were saying about being called up to the altar. That was in a Protestant church. So yeah, you, Protestant so you,
1: church in, uh, in Huntington Park.
0: So you, did, so you attended Protestant as well as Catholic services? No, I,
1: I went there twice. Just, I actually spent more time in the Catholic than I did the Protestant. Huh. My mother took me at the most twice. I remember going into the, sitting down in the church, and there, the guy's up there, and I'm just a kid. You know, I was six when he said, any of those who accept Jesus Christ in their heart, step forward. So I got up and came forward. I was the only kid.
0: Yeah, so you must have been somewhat of an outgoing kid.
1: Outgoing, yeah. I, I've, I, you know what? I, I'm a show-off by nature. And I know it, and I have to keep it under control. And so I don't know if that was part of it, but right. I, I'm, not gonna, I'm not timid, let's put it that way.
0: What did you do after high school?
1: I went in the Navy. Uh, I'd actually joined the reserves while I was in high school. Now remember, this was in between wars. It was uh, after Korea and before Vietnam. So, uh, I, And then when I graduated from high school, I had nothing to do. By the way, I was a flunky in high school. I just wanted to play. I, who knows what I wanted to do, <laughs> but I, I wasn't that interested in uh, academic excellence. <clears throat> anyway, so uh, I joined the Navy, and uh, so I went into and I had two years inactive, uh, active, and six years inactive. That was the thing I signed up for. So I had nothing else to do. I got married right out of high school, so I joined up, and I and I was stationed nearby Long Beach at Los Alamos for two years, and I was a weatherman. In the Navy, and uh, then I went to work in. We had an Italian restaurant in Italian neighborhood in Whittier, uh, with a little bar on one side, a restaurant on the other. My dad, uh, you know, so I went to work there as a bartender. You know, and I had the wife, and I had about three or four kids in the Navy. Uh, Then I, I finally decided, you know, there's no reason I can't go to college. Because I, I knew I wasn't dumb. I, I knew that, whatever they thought. So I worked full-time, and I went to Long Beach State College, and I did four years and three, burning the candles at both ends, and became an elementary school teacher. At what point did you run into the Baha'i faith? I was a teacher uh, in elementary school, and I, and my, I wanted to teach in an uh, all-black and why was that the meaning of my last name is di liberto, which means in Italian you were of the freed you were you were a slave at some time under the Romans and then when they freed you took the name di liberto of the freed so I kind of always had this thing you had to fight for the underdog I always had that in me that's why also I went to uh, in the inner city in Los Angeles and it was a wonderful experience for me, and I met a, uh, we were going to take the kids on a field trip, but there's no money for it. And so one of the other teachers said, well, we'll, we'll, we'll yes, you and I will get some friends with cars, and we'll take them all. I, you couldn't do that today, you know. So we took them to the uh, L.A. Zoo. So she had a friend who who had a van, and he brought it, and, and I met him. And his name was Lloyd Haynes, who was passed on, and he subsequently had a TV show Room 222. And so we got to know him, and I learned of the faith from him, and one thing led to another, and my wife and I uh, embraced it. So I told my mother about it. She immediately became a Baha'i and said, this is what my grandmother taught me. Remember, this is the Irish grandmother, my great-grandmother, who died when I was three. Everyone lionized her as a mystic and a clairvoyant and all of that, and, you know, that tradition came to me. Okay, make a long story short, Actually, in that grandmother's Bible was a picture of Abdu'l-Bahá from 1921. So who's Abdu'l-Bahá, Ed? Abdu'l-Bahá is the son of the founder of the Baha'i faith. He has a special position because he uh, was invested by his father with the power to interpret the revelation and the sacred writings and live them. Uh, as an example to the rest of humanity, and of course, I didn't know that at the time. I still have the Bible. It's uh, it's ten yards away from me right now with that picture in it, and I had seen that picture because I'd gone through that Bible until it, my mother showed it to me. Did it register? So uh, she was in Los Angeles when he came there and taught my mother that. Although she, you know, the minute I told her about it, she said, "Well, that's what my grandmother taught me," and became a bond and was very faithful and staunch to the end. So you know, who knows, you got these strands of destiny that may be at work uh, and gives you the, remember I said, uh, uh, good pride means you have something to live up to, not that you're better than any other people. And so that added to it, you know, and all my children, all my grandchildren, everybody has been carried on through them. When you heard about
0: the Baha'i faith from Lloyd Haynes, Mm -hmm. what was it about the Baha'i faith that attracted you to it?
1: Well, uh, going back, he'd mentioned it to me, but he, he never taught it to me directly, ever, ever. But he went out of his way to befriend my wife and myself. He was single at the time, and we became friends. We'd go to parties at his house and all of that. And then uh, it, was be, it was very vague uh, uh, that of uh, this thing he was in, very vague. And then he got a girlfriend. Then we double dated with them and she became interested in the faith through him and she began to study it. And then she gave us information on it. So he never really did it. Any, said anything to me about it. Okay. Now I'm, you know, I kind of vaguely aware of it and I'm at his house. He's asked me to help him paint his house. you know, like a friend. Okay. We're in the house, painting the house, doing the ceiling and all that. And he said to me, uh, I'll never forget this because it was very good. He says, Ed, you know, you're a great guy, but you have one weakness. But that got my attention because, hey, I don't have any weakness. <laughs> you know, kind of a you know, little hubris I probably had in those days. And I looked at him and he, was talking. he says, you only believe in yourself. Now, I knew what he meant. But to me, that had been self-reliance had been kind of like my credo. But I knew what he meant, that, you know, there's a, a power greater than yourself. He didn't say that. He said, now, I'd like you to do me a favor. I said, well, sure, anything. You're my, you know, sort of friend. Now, that approach to me, looking back, was the right one. Because he, he knew if I said I would do something as a favor, that I would follow through with it. Because, you know, he knew me. So he said, sure, anything. So he hands me God Passes By, which is a book a detailed book on the history of the first hundred years of the Baha'i faith, written by the great-grandson of the founder. So I I said, oh, and then he says, read this book, and when you're done, tell me what you think. So, uh, you know, I'd already committed myself, so I labored through it. All these people back in the, you know, 1840s and 50s, uh, in the Middle East, they all went through hell, they were martyred, they were suffered they just like the christians you know they burnt them they cut them to pieces did everything because they'd accepted this new message which was for the unification and peace of mankind i picked that up and i said and uh, these goals were no, noble and worth pursuing but as far as the identity of the founder you know being a, a messenger sent from god as, you know, as Christ had been, and Moses and Buddha and all the rest. That, you know, I wasn't ready for. It. So now, the, that was that question that, uh, you know, my wife and I began to address. Uh, nobody can lie that big. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't think of any other program better for the uh, salvation of mankind.
0: So, Ed, what changed your mind about the station of Baha'u'llah?
1: I realized I had to actually read something by him. Because obviously, you know, anyone who would just give a, a, a cursory history, a, you know, his life was a sacrifice, and he suffered and, and delivered, and did not get him to go to any school. He was aged, raised in an age of ignorance and delivered this program for the unification of the planet and all these very progressive principles. We just can't reject this out of hand. So I contacted the Baha'is in Long Beach, and through the, the, I got a book, Seven Valleys. What's that? Seven Valleys is uh, an allegory of the spiritual journey of the soul of man. And it's an allegory, like a journey through valleys, and as you journey, you overcome difficulties and acquire more spiritual enlightenment until you reach the ineffable comprehension of the reality of the Creator. Hey. Man, write that down. <laughs> 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 okay. Anyway, so I, I, uh, I went alone and read the darn book, gave attention to it. Because, by the way, although I never was uh, good in school, I've read all the classics. Because I knew a classical education was the best. So I've re- I'd read them all. Plato, Epictetus, and I still read them. I love them. I was a Platonist in many ways. So, you know, I was good at reading that kind of things. I studied the Bible. I read it. I read the whole New Testament when I was in the Navy. Uh, so, I, you know, I didn't come into it without some background. Then I meditated on it, and I said, okay, i got three choices. Number one, this guy is the biggest charlatan in the history of the world. He was lying, and he knew it. That's what a charlatan is. Okay, that's on one hand. The other hand is, he was demented. He's one of those crazy prophets wandering the wilderness who just dreams all this stuff up, And but he's nuts. And the third is, he's exactly who he said he was. He said, in his own writings, this thing is not for me. I was asleep like every other man upon my couch, when, oh, lo, the breezes of the Almighty were wafted over me and taught me the knowledge of all things, ask of the school wherein I attended, there isn't any, and so forth. Well, that's what he said, and his whole behavior, without going into detail of his entire life, was rational, and had no sign of insanity, and as I said before, he didn't gain anything, he suffered, he bore the burden of this as all the prophets do before, where charlatans do things for their own secret gain. So I eliminated one and two, and I, by the skin of my teeth, I said, "Okay, I'll accept his word. Uh, You know, he's who he said he was, and and I'll give it a try. You know, with some doubts, because you know even the saints had doubts. Then I, uh, my wife and I both became Baha'is, as you know. There's no priesthood, there's no clergy, so you know it's kind of you do yourself a religion. And I immediately read every book I could get my hands on within a year. Because, as I said, although I wasn't a student in school very good, I was very good in things I cared about. Then, uh, you know, my faith and certitude grew, and you can never get the absolutely certain, because no matter how certain you are, you can imagine someone more certain than yourself. So it's an infinitude. Throughout the years, uh, I say, show me something better, and I'll be, get, be happy to, to get rid of this, because there's no program that I know of that promises the the greatest probability of mankind passing through this horrible stage in which we're in right now, of the disunity of mankind, and establishing some sort of global, peaceful civilization.
0: After you became a Baha'i, how
1: did that turn your life, if it did? I was never a big drinker. I liked being myself. We immediately became very active in the Baha'i faith, and all my old friends, Dropped me like a hot potato because I was living living a life that had a purpose and a direction. I had a philosophy of life to follow, principles, divine and holy principles that would would benefit mankind that I love to speak about and to others about. You know, they plug their ears, they want interest in that stuff. They want to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. So then my wife and I, uh, you, you know, we uh, were elected to the governing body, the local body, and they made me chairman and her secretary, and, you know, we began uh, the survey. What, what a, a beautiful thing of, our, of the Baha'i faith is that you can be involved as little or as much as you like. No one's there telling you to do this and don't do that. It's, it, you know, it's up to you. So we were quite active. And then in studying the writings, we realized one of the things you could do is to go to a virgin area in the world and help st- establish the Baha'i faith. So we uh, did that in our third year. We went to Argentina.
0: And why did you pick Argentina?
1: A fickle finger of fate, to tell you the truth. <laughs> uh, well, no, they needed someone there. That was one thing. I knew Italian so or so, and, you know, and I could probably do Spanish, and I learned Spanish quickly. So we went there, and we were there for two years. My profession as an educator uh, helped me to get jobs in the Central America, South America, Guatemala, all these places, in mm-hmm. El Salvador, and that helped me, uh, you know, get a job.
0: So, why did you leave Argentina after two years?
1: My wife got sick, very sick, in fact, and pregnant. So we came back, and then uh, I immediately got a job, you know, as a teacher again. And then we waited a couple of years, and then we went to Central America for a couple of years. I was a principal of American School. Also, I did that with the, the Bahai Faith. I was a director of the Bosch It's a Bahai School a Youth Institute, and used my educational skills in traveling to 26 countries in Europe.
0: Were these were short trips that you took? Yeah,
1: yeah. Sure, uh, up to uh, three months at the most. I was sent on special assignments. By the uh, institutions of the faith, especially with the opening of Eastern Europe to help get the Bahais that the old Bahais that were there, as well as the newly interested, on their feet and up and running. Because you know the Bahai faith is not is not a missionary type deal. People have to uh, you know who accept it have to make it their own. And one of the beauties of the Bahai teachings and the faith is that it's able to adapt itself to every climate, every culture and every condition.
0: So give me an example of that.
1: Well, for example, I was sent on a mission to the uh, Darien jungle, which is on the border between Panama and Bolivia. Only canals. Only through the the Darien River in canoes. And I was visiting uh, the various Indian Vahean communities who lived exactly as they did 500 years ago. So... The women are naked from the top up. What do we do, go tell them, put on a brassiere? No. You, you know, they have their culture, and eventually, they, you know, they're going to evolve in time, and they will make those kind of decisions. So that's an example of uh, not imposing uh, our particular, you know, Western our, values. Even the laws of the Baha'i faith are, are gradually instilled, even upon Westerners, you know, because, uh, you know, I have a lot of kids. You don't ask a child to do something until he's capable of doing it. Until that time, you don't. And you have to have the wisdom to know when the child is at the mental maturity and physical maturity to actually do what you ask of them. Uh, If you ask them prematurely, you frustrate the child and yourself. If you wait too long, you may miss the uh, the golden moment. So uh, this is the uh, power of the faith to adapt itself. But in time, it slowly molds those general principles of unific- unity, oneness of mankind, the oneness of races, the equality of men and women, those eternal principles will be adopted by everybody. But you can't twist people's arm and make them do something they're not ready for. Do you have
0: a relationship with the Wilmette Institute? And if you do, can you describe for me what the Wilmette Institute is and what did you do for the Wilmette Institute?
1: Yeah. Well, uh the Wilmette Institute is a, a very refined and, and highly developed online course through the Internet, and I've been doing it for about six years. And uh, they, they offer a, a, a wide range of subjects either directly about the Baha'i faith or social issues important to the Baha'i faith, such as equality in men and women, such as global warming, science and religion, which are important issues for mankind to, to face. Uh, it also has uh, courses in-depth of, Baha- of some of the, the basic Baha'i texts. A person is uh, able to get a scholarship if they're not able to afford it or partial, and, or there's a nominal fee to en- en- enroll for the course, and then you'll be assigned a mentor along with a number of other students, and then uh, you, you have access to the course of study and the texts, uh, with study questions and discussions, uh, and each person can become involved as much as their time and interest demand. I think it's, a, it's been a wonderful experience for me. I think I've done a whole lot because mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm retired now, so I have time to do it. Also, it's open to non-Baha'is who can sign up for any course they want and go along with the rest of it. Mm-hmm. And they, they last approximately two months.
0: And what courses have you taught?
1: All of the basic texts of the Baha'i faith, uh, which are numerous, and many of the uh, major letters of the head of the Baha'i faith, which is a universal body seated in Israel, elected by the world Baha'i community every five years. Uh, And they will issue general circulars on important issues confronting humanity and then we will have courses of study of those, such as world peace, such as the, uh, the problem of inequality of wealth, and so forth. So we'll have courses on that, plus, as I say, the fundamental texts of the Baha'i faith, its histories, its teachings, the writings of the author of the Baha'i faith, and that's probably worth explaining. Uh, one of the unique features of the Baha'i uh, religion, and I say religion in the classical sense, a revealed religion, it's not a philosophy, is that the prophet founder, Baha'u'llah, meaning the glory of God, who suffered and was imprisoned and poisoned and exiled and beaten and like, treated like all the other prophets of God, he left over 200 books written with his own pen. That is unique. We have no writings, authentic, known writings. Of Moses, Abraham, Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, all we have is what's been passed down by others. In the case, not so with the case of, uh, of the writings of our faith. We have all of the original books on various subjects, both spiritual and practical, for the establishment of a global civilization, for the establishment of new science, and the development of a uh, global civilization and the final reconciliation of all the religions of mankind. And so those various texts are the subject uh, of most of the Wilmette Institute's courses. So, Ed, what do
0: you think your life would have been like if you had not become a Baha'i?
1: I can't say exactly. I may have become more Catholic, because I had, I had good sentiments about it. I can't say exactly what it would happen. Uh, if we do believe in destiny which I do, but there was no other other course for me than the mm. one I've uh, followed.
0: Right. I have another question for you. Is there something that you haven't done yet that you still want to do?
1: I am the most grateful person you can imagine because of the wonderful experiences I've had in striving to advance these principles of the oneness of mankind and the opportunities I've been given. I never thought a single one that, that's the weird thing. Other than volunteering to go pioneering, that I did. Everything else I was asked to do. I was called and asked to be, we'd like to, we'd like to invite you to be a mentor in the Well-Met Institute. I said, okay. I get a call from you know, the authorities of the faith. We'd like you to travel to Eastern Europe to do, oh, okay. We'd like, so <laughs> it's just astounding. And, and the thrills, I've been everywhere. I've done everything. I've done, been on, like, secret missions in a way. And all, and all of it, you know, I don't know. I can't explain it. I can't imagine it anymore. It was just glorious to open new areas to the faith where no one's ever been before. Yeah. I really have miraculous experiences. I can't tell you. You'd think I'm nuts. The, the things that happen once you uh, say, uh, you know, I'm ready to give my all for this. You know, right. once you do that abounding over in mm. the wonders and uh, experiences I've had. Mm. I'm 79. Uh, okay, I'll give you, this may not mean to our listeners much, I was sent to Turkey. Turkey. Oh, okay, Turkey, yeah, what am I going to do there? So I get there, I wind up going there three times. And I was told I was the first non-Eastern Baha'i to be invited to Turkey since the time of Martha Root, Martha Root was one of the uh, early teachers of the Baha'i faith who traveled the world in the 20s and founded the faith in uh, many countries and had access to royalty, potentates, kings. Even the Queen Maria of Romania gave her an audience and subsequently became a Baha'i. So she was an extraordinary teacher of the faith uh, of her age, and uh, she went to eastern, comp- eastern countries so when I heard that, I was honored, really honored. Looking back, I'm, I'm chameleon-like. I'm able to adapt myself to wherever I am. I, I'm quiet. I learn to know the people, and I don't lord it over them. I fit in and show how much I love them, because I do. So that's why I can be with the naked Indians in the Darien jungle or sit with the vice president of uh, Romania and, and speak at a banquet. I would say to a, uh, anyone who's listening who's not heard of the Black Faith, it's certainly worth investigating, because you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. As far as the person accepting the, the faith, that's a matter of heart, and, and no one can interfere with that. Just like I did, I'm, probably you did, we, we learned of it, we looked into it, and then what does our heart say about it? Mm. Is this from God or not? It's that simple.
0: Well, Ed, thank you so much for sharing your story and your thoughts with us.
1: Well, it's been my honor to tell you the truth.
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview with Ed DiLiberto, an educator who has traveled the world serving the Baha'i faith. You can find this interview and other interviews at com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
2: gift I've been given All my time is my own today And what else could I have chosen but to give it to you Cause I can't give away what isn't mine And all that I have is my life and my time And the feel of a hometown where I Slipping away, I'll be empty handed So all I can call these things my own when I give them to you. I hold the earth in the palm of my hand, so say the wise and the sages. I've got nothing, but I'm working God's land. I've got the wealth of the ages I wear the clothing of the common man Doing the work of the angels Time flies like fine grains of sand My life is a turn of the pages And I'll give it to you Cause I can't give away what isn't mine all that I have is my life and my time. The feel of a hometown where I landed. The slipping away, I'll be empty handed. So, while I can call these things my own, can I give them to you? Shall pass empty-handed Into the hollow that is dark For those who speak no more It's only my life till it's ended And it's only what love demanded To give it to you It's like giving away what isn't I really claim my life or my time? Or even the hometown where I landed The slipping away of be empty-handed So all I can call these things my own Then I give them to you And if I can call these things my own Then I give them to you I call these things.
3: His name, though he suffered many hardships, this mighty branch stood loyal and firm the bond between. Never broken words of love, need not be spoken like drawn to a flame. This loyal moth guards his name, guards his. distance or walls that part this moth could still feel the beating of his heart and when the flame had no more life he said he not deserved but he chose to sacrifice like drawn to a flame Loyal man guards his name. Guards his name, like drawn to a flame. This loyal mom God's His name, God's His name, God's His name, God's His. his
4: So love the world he built to fire And I'm burning away in its heat Oh, the promise is made with creation A covenant for all humankind A fortress of strength for my wandering heart To its magnet of love I will bind hand. No, he's, he's doing, doing... Shepherd, the herd, perfect exemplar to guide the way, interpreter of his word, and then he holds out his hand.
5: Votes for change, but nothing grows from conflict Except the things we hate about ourselves No, they can't pass a law to end indifference No human rights can break us from our shell. Cause... True freedom is in submission to his commandments And we say, who oh, needs them? But we're out wishing for something more mysterious His lips have disappeared from acting serious And watching all his numbers rise and fall He walks on by me singing in the subway And he plugs his ears, won't listen to me call it out That true freedom is in submission to his commandments We say, oh but we're out wishing for something more remarkable my than my cereal. You stay in your cocoon to save your wings And you double about the door to your apartment But how did you think that could keep you safe from anything? True freedom is in submission to his commandments And you say, who needs them? But we're out wishing for something more mysterious than them and us true freedom is in submission to his commandments and you say who needs them but we're out wishing for something more remarkable than material. true freedom is in submission to his commandments and you say who needs them but we're out wishing for something